You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. Jenny Vall has made a great new album of challenging, ethereal music exploring themes of vampirism and the female body. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We speak to Norwegian singer-songwriter Jenny Vall. Plus, we review new albums from Harry Styles and Sir the Baptist and look at how two very different artists sample an obscure 60s gospel recording. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we'll be talking with Jenny Val, a Norwegian singer-songwriter who makes incredibly complicated, sometimes challenging music from a unique perspective. But first, let's weigh in on some new albums. Just stop you crying, it's a sign of the times. Welcome to the final show. Hope you're wearing your best clothes. Can't bribe the door on your way to the sky You look pretty good down here But you ain't really good We never learned we've been here before Why are we always stuck and running from the bullets? That is a little bit of Sign of the Times, the title track from the first solo album by Harry Styles. Who is Harry Styles, Greg? Um, You could not write a better script for a new millennial pop star than Harry Styles' actual story. Raised in Cheshire, England, he uh, started out with a band called White Eskimo, but in 2010 he auditioned as a solo artist for the British television series The X Factor. That, of course, is like American Idol, but the Brits got there first. He didn't win as a solo performer, but he was invited back on the show and paired with four other contestants. These five young men became One Direction, the uh, pop phenom that has put out five albums, toured the world, sold millions of records, and set many young hearts athrob. Now he uh, has made this album, which is very much uh, a sort of classic rock record done in modern pop style. What does the music sound like? We're going to play a track from Harry Styles' self-titled album and then come back and give our opinions on the music. This is Ever Since New York by Harry Styles on Sound Opinions. Tell me something Tell me something you don't know nothing Just pretend you do I need something Tell me something new Choose your words cause there's no antidote 
That is ever since New York from the self-titled Harry Styles debut solo album. Uh, Harry Styles trying to make that transition into an adult pop star. You will note, uh, if you are at all a fan of 70s radio rock, that Badfinger riff that is uh, <laughs> Baby very, Blue. <laughs> Baby very Blue. straightforwardly ripped off on that song. I don't think that's where Harry got yeah. it. I think he got it from the last episode of Breaking Bad. Well, that a- was the finale music. That could well be. Uh, You know, it makes some sense. There's a lot of references to the 70s and 60s even uh, on these songs. Uh, He's working with a producer named Jeff Basker who is uh, specializing in freshening up these sort of retro-leaning sounds. He's worked with people like uh, Kanye West and Jay-Z. He did that Mark Ronson, Bruno Mars song, Uptown Funk. Uh, so the man knows his uh, retro. You know, I was expecting a little bit more of a pop-leaning stadium-style uh, record in the in the mode of, of One Direction, but he obviously went for a more intimate style. And I'm not sure that this record really succeeds in either direction. You know, he, he's not giving us those giant stadium pop yeah. hooks that made One Direction, you know, probably the biggest boy band in the world for about five years. Um, but he's not giving us anything to really latch onto. I mean, a lot of people uh, were talking about uh, that song, Sign of the Times, is this great breakthrough. But you listen oh, not, to Not the... only that, the British press is yeah. saying because of that song that he is the new Bowie. And, and if you look at the lyrics closely, and I advise not to because you're going to go <laughs> blind, they're absolutely nonsensical. Um, so he's not really telling us anything. I think there's an attempt here to be, make a more personal record. It's a personal sounding record, mm-hmm. but he's not really telling us anything here. Between the obvious ripoffs of earlier st- sounds and the fact that the lyrics aren't very substantive, I think this is a very mediocre kind of record. The fact that it, if it was put out by anyone but one of the biggest pop stars on the planet by virtue of his mm. previous groups, I don't think anybody would really be paying attention to this music. Uh, it's a trash it record for me. Well, Greg, uh, I may surprise you, but I like it a little more than you. Not enough to give it a buy it. I will uh, say it's a try it on our patented uh, buy it, try it, trash it scale. You know that that old uh, saying about the monkey with the typewriter? It's not the quality of what he's typing, but just that he can type it all. Huh. All right. So we have this young product of the modern pop machine making what is essentially a dad rock record. I'm right. not the first critic to say that. That conversation has been out there. I'll tell you, um, there are actually some some charming moments here, most of them ripped off from other places in rock history. Uh, you know, everything and the kitchen sink is in there. I would turn to Justin Timberlake. That was an extraordinary departure from a boy band to real superstardom as a solo artist. When he left in sync, he, uh, I think, shocked many critics by being, you know, a truly visionary young artist who was doing very interesting things. I am not seeing that yet from Harry, but I applaud his ambition for making a record uh, that, that's kind of, you know, a modern indie take on all this classic rock. So it's a try it for me. Bottles popped and it feels like Windows seat to the top. I want to see my 
angel on my side. Man, it feels just like hell. Feels like hell. Feel like hell. Mike Jack went moonwalking. <laughs> Never came back. Prince met the king. Aaliyah sent four pages back. A penny with Pocky never's ghetto. Paul Walker found it behind the pedal. And that's like Nate Dog, a pretty lord. That all my dogs go to heaven. Whether you working nine to five. That is Heaven from Sir the Baptist. His first album is called Saint or Sinner. Sir the Baptist, uh, that's a fanciful name uh, for William James Stokes. Uh, a, a preacher's son, as you might have deduced from a name like Sir the Baptist, uh, out of the famed Chicago neighborhood, Bronzeville, on the south side. Now, Sir the Baptist uh, grew up in church. I mean, his father was a preacher. He sang in choirs. He was a drummer. He veered into an advertising career, but then uh, decided to devote himself full-time uh, to music. It was at one point a Lyft driver who was essentially homeless. He was living in his car. Uh, while making uh, what turned out to be uh, the music for his debut album. Uh, came on the scene full force in 2015 with a song called Raise Hell. Mama say she gonna lose me. She prayed the angels out on duty. Preacher can't even rebuke me. When a lot of people talk about Kanye West's Life of Pablo, Chance the Rapper's coloring book uh, in 2016 as being heavily gospel-influenced, I think uh, in many ways Sir the Baptist got there first with uh, the Raise Hell single. That turned a lot of heads and a lot of anticipation. He was eventually signed to a major label record deal on the strength of some of the music he was putting out. Sir the Baptist was on the festival circuit last year. Those of you who attended Lollapalooza may will well remember a performance where Sir the Baptist was singing part of the set from a casket that he brought on stage. <laughs> he staged his own funeral, uh, essentially a commentary on the gun violence in Chicago, but also a deeper message about uh, faith, about spirituality, and about the role it could play in the lives of young people. He has been very outspoken about the idea that the church and religious music and gospel music no longer speaks to the youth uh, of America and the youth of Chicago specifically. We're going to review Saint or Sinner in a minute, but let's play a track from it first. It's called Deliver Me from Sir the Baptist on Sound Opinions. We rappers and hip-hop's got to change the cool factor. We got to start loving on our loved ones. I've never hit a woman and I never will, but mentally I've done the same damage. And I just want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We never know what we're doing. What we're doing. Hey. I had to tell her, see, we need a real Christian. Sunday, can a guy, when it crosses his fingers, when he lies, crosses heart, and hopes to die, crosses T's, and dots his eye. Cross his tassel when he crossed the stage, crossing over pledging, beta fire. You need a good guy, and I'm just a PK with two crosses on. A half singing rapper that could pin a song. <sighs> but I guess perfection is boring.
That is Deliver Me from the debut album by Sir the Baptist, Saint or Sinner. What an extraordinary track, Greg. Um, Sir the Baptist has been romantically linked with Brandy, and Brandy is playing the role in that song of a woman named Mary. Uh, Sir the Baptist has said, I remember my sister Mary would get beat by her husband, who was the deacon of the church. The whole church knew, but no one would say anything. So, yes, he is firmly based in that rich Chicago tradition of gospel music. Goes back to the uh, uh, Reverend Thomas Dorsey. You know, gospel was pretty much invented here. But he is skeptical about uh, fake religion or 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 uh, faith that is not grounded in in morality he is questioning that I think a song like deliver me is some of the most powerful music out of uh, independent Chicago uh, music since since push a man by chance the rapper so if you put together coloring book by chance and Jamila Woods uh, debut album and this new record by Sir the Baptist you, you know there is a new sound a borning in Chicago the post Kanye West uh, mix of of hip-hop and soul R&B whatever you want to call it you know there is some rapping on this record Killa Mike makes an appearance so does groundbreaking uh, Chicago rapper Twista um, you know it, it's a dense complicated, very rewarding record that is full of sexuality, but also philosophizing about religion and its role in the community. A dozen listens in, I'm still picking up, you know, additional themes I hadn't even caught the first time. It's a really rich record, and it's an absolute buy it as far as I'm concerned. You know, he's a very interesting artist because he's 30 years old, uh, but he grew up with gospel. Um, and while hip-hop is a huge part of this record, obviously, he's very steeped in the roots of, of that music. Um, Chicago gospel was such a, a linchpin for that, for that community um, for, for decades. Um, and I think he's, he's bringing that forward. You know, there's doo-wop in this record, there's jazz, these old-school sounds that may not resonate with um, you know somebody under the age of thirty today are very much a, a part of his vocabulary, but he is combining it with the street on Deliver Me that duet he does with Brandy. You know he is implicating himself as much as any man uh, in this song for standing by and allowing this to happen. When he talks about uh, the Reverend uh, smelling of weed, you know it, it's judgmental, but then he also tells us how much he likes to smoke. Right, and actually the the the, the one part of the album that sort of leaves me a little cold is that digression in the middle where he does have that little weed skit. Moses smoked weed, y'all didn't know that. How you think he raised that water so high? <laughs> this really doesn't belong here. You well, know, I, do not forget that he worked for a long time for Leo Burnett, one of the top advertising firms in the world. He was on the McDonald's account. Right. So he knows how to sell. He knows right? how to sell stuff. You know, the, the first half of the album, Steeped in Those Gospel Roots, is, is really, really strong. Then he brings it back to the idea of dancing as being therapeutic and important. It's, it's great to get on that dance floor and work out some of the, these issues just by the joy of dancing. And then the final song, Heaven, I, I, it, it's interesting how he frames the album with these two amazing amazing songs that really put him on the map. You know, uh, Raise Hell at the Top and, and Heaven as the way of closing the album uh, is, is really just, a, I think, an extraordinary achievement. It's a, it's a great debut record, and it's a buy it for me. Everybody needs to dance, need to dance, need to dance. We've just reviewed two records, Jim. Harry Styles, I gave it a trash, and you gave it a try. I'm a little Very kinder, empathetic. Yeah. And uh, we both gave Sir the Baptist an enthusiastic double buy it. 
What do you think of these new albums? Besides our opinions, we want to hear yours. Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. After a break, we'll talk with singer and performance artist Jenny Ball. And later in the show, we'll explain how an obscure gospel song has found new life in a pop tune. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. In those Air Force Ones, or trapping for Air Force One, tapping on points, or you're dapping to joints. Whether you back in the pound or a purple crown bag of coins, you just trying to stack some stacks, hauling crap in the rain. Or you left this small city for that high rise cause you got dreams locked behind your eyes, yeah. Or you hit that street corner just to sell your song on this, you only wish to make enough for a meal. As I write this, I must pretend Someone's holding my hand Probably someone dead Would be the only one to hold me now Ice cold Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Codd. And that is a little of our guest this week, Norwegian singer-songwriter Jenny Val. I should spell it for people, H-V-A-L. Uh, Greg, what a fascinating artist. She's not just a musician. She also does performance art, sound installations. She's had two novels published in Norwegian. Her latest album, Blood Bitch, uh, made my top ten last year. At times, the music is part Kate Bush, part Bjork, part Laurie Anderson, and part Nordic death metal, which she fell in love with in her early teens. It winds up as a totally unique uh, sound that is completely her own, I think. Yeah, Jim, it's the latest iteration of a career that is uh, musically and culturally extremely diverse. I mean, she began singing in this Norwegian gothic metal band, Shelley's Raven, back in the 90s. You know, when she went to uh, college, uh, she went pretty far away from Norway, about as far as you can get, yeah. all the way to Australia uh, to study. She started developing her voice uh, while there as a songwriter, and then she returned to Norway and began her recording career and has maintained it ever since. You know, uh, the first two albums, Greg, she was performing under a stage name, Rocket to the Sky. But in the four albums since then, Jenny Val has been recording as Jenny Val. I asked her why she switched to using her own name. When my f- first album was coming out, I think I wanted to have something to separate myself from the music and not the self that I am, but the self that you see, at least you saw 10 years ago when a female artist is playing a guitar. I really felt very nervous about being an artist. Didn't really want to be, I wanted to be invisible. I wanted to be more like a collective or a gray cloud you didn't really know who were which was incredibly difficult i mean people just want the lights in your eyes people want to 
eats you. You know, they want they want to steal your identity and put it on a clear photo. In my opinion, actually, the second album I did under the name of Rocket to the Sky is probably one of the most personal things I've done. So I should have maybe then used mm. my name. But who, who? I mean, what yeah. is a name anyway? You know. <laughs> A name is the least personal part of you in some in, in one way and then very personal in another. I get the sense that you kind of buckle against the whole idea of being cast as a musician. Like you were just talking about the woman with the guitar on stage. And I think people from that, when they see that, they typecast singer-songwriter. Oh yeah, they, it's a typecast genre. Mm -hmm. Also the content and what things mean, everything means. It's like a film being put in a comedy or, is it comedy or drama? And if it could be any anywhere in between or any, it doesn't matter. Your music strikes me as being very fluid. Like, what genre is this exactly? And it does. That seems like it's very important for you not to be in a box or in a genre. Yeah, but thankfully for myself and others, I don't care so much what other people label me as anymore. That's why I can use my name, even if someone calls me a female singer-songwriter. That means a very particular thing to one person and a very other particular thing to the next person so you can't really control what words mean to people that's still kind of a, a free space i mean i see kind of all music like that mm -hmm. i mean all types of even mainstream music can, can be really fluid sometimes in the production in the way that it is addressed in the character of the artist there is you, it, it, it's a matter of how you look at things but i'm very I, i think my music deals very much with how you look at things Statistics and newspapers tell me I am unhappy and dying But I need man and child to, to fulfill me But I'm more likely to get breast cancer And it's biology, it's, it's my own fault it's Also part of this is like when you're a singer-songwriter You're writing songs on a guitar. People assume that. When you're an electronic artist, you're writing songs on a computer. There's sort of methodology attached to genre. How do you begin writing songs? It's shifted a lot. It's been back and forth. I've, I've done many different things. I've, Blood Bitch was very much a computer album, but also uh, me be falling in love with a, an old synthesizer. It's more about sound for me now. I've seen you mention the Arp Odyssey in, uh, yeah. as being really important to the gestation of Blood Bitch. What was it about that machine and about analog synthesizers that you loved? I wish I had a better, more interesting reason, but the, the reason why it became important was just because I bought it. Okay. <laughs> that was what I had. It's the I one mean, you found. I really do think yeah. that it, it's not about the tools you have. It's about just grabbing something and mm -hmm. then doing something with it that creates a new space.
I mean, as well as being loving the sounds of the synthesizer, it's also the simplicity of having a monophonic. I mean, you can only play one note at a time,、mm-hmm. but the simplicity of just doing one at a time、just、and one, focusing、yeah. on the sound and the knobs and the ups and downs of this and that and learning how to create sounds was well, very much. Well, there's something magical about those analog synths too, because you can surprise yourself with a sound. Mm-hmm. That you never heard before, and then of course it has this double-edged sword. You'll never hear it again. You yeah, turn yeah. those knobs. It's not like you just hit a button preset. Yeah, and I think the surprise is good. I mean, I love presets too, if they're good. But that's a different type of composition.、Mm-hmm. I'm I do both. I I love working with found sounds and and beats that I just take from whatever and conversations I've recorded. What's this album about, Jenny? About vampires? No. Yeah. What? Well, it's about more things than that, but a large theme of it is. That's <laughs> so basic. <laughs> it's about vampires. <laughs> Anything that I find that that has a certain vibe to it that I can just understand rhythmically, sonically, melodically. If there's something there, I can use blocks and build music too. But、um, it was mostly about the being surprised by sound and then. Trying to think, what is this world that's coming through this instrument now? And we were recording from almost the very beginning, and so a lot of the songs, lyrics, sonic passages were created as we were recording. And, and we and is you and Lassie. Yes, Lasse Marhag. Lasse Marhag.、Okay. He's a beautiful man. Very different to work with as a producer from from working with someone who knows how to play instruments because、mm. he's a noise musician. Yeah. He he's never owned a keyboard. So yeah, it's great to work with someone with, with such an abstract relationship to song structures,、mm. because then you have this otherworldly input. You know, so, sometimes it was just about finding ah, this sound is great. Why, why? <laughs> and then trying to make something. And other times it's like, oh, this reminds me of this in this movie.、Mm. Ah, ah, ah.、Oh. And we talked about what kind of scene is this from a movie.、Mm-hmm. And that's how some songs came too. Like they were sort of structured around. Almost like a script. I'm in a big house, having big dreams. Then the next time I wake up, there's blood on the bed. There's been a lot of connections made between blood bitch and、uh, and horror movies and and vampirism and、mm. blood imagery. I seen seen you even in one interview mentioned Goblin, that wonderful Italian progressive rock band、yeah. that did all the Dario Argento soundtracks. Yeah, I was、um, watching those films too,、yeah. and and listening to that music, obviously. There is some noisy and you know jarring passages in there, but there's a lot of sensuality in this music too. It seemed like you almost drew that out of your experience with these horror movies that it was it was sensual as much as horrifying. Well, there isn't much horrifying about the '70s horror movies.、Mm-hmm. It's mostly sensual and very actually quite innocent, and that's something I think that it's easy to forget because. 
how we look at things now is from a very present point of view, and this is a very violent time. So as soon as something is violent, that's what people are going to pick up on. It's it's how we see things. And one of the reasons why I wanted to go to the 70s and became very fascinated with that was because it was, um, it was a time where the underground, both the music scenes around in Europe and the European film industry of more underground genres, they took great liberties. They were very sensual, but they weren't just selling sex. There is something, there's something good about remembering how the connection between horror movies and capitalism, it wasn't as defined as it became later. There was, there was this kind of true underground feeling mm-hmm. to this. And I started make, like, making connections between the black metal scene, the punk scene, horror movies, like all these sort of lo-fi expressions where you're not quite hi-fi or technically skilled enough to be part of the mainstream, which means to be part of mainstream capitalism. So there is a sort of beautiful resistance there, yeah, which is actually about making things less violent. Yeah, the hyper-violence of a Hollywood horror movie versus an underground horror movie, a very different kind of feel. Yeah, and when you listen to the soundtracks of many of these horror movies, you know, like the Goblin soundtrack, they're, yeah. they're not about the... <laughs> Sounds no, no, really very not creepy. often going in exact opposite to what you're seeing yeah. on screen. But creepy can be wonderfully beautiful. Mm-hmm. Creepy can be understated, subtle. It can be very innocent. You know, it can be all these things. It doesn't have to be jarring. And I mean, yeah. and those words can sometimes also be used to sell something. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit critical of sometimes being called like a jarring artist, a provocative artist, an mm-hmm. experimental artist, because all this is capitalism too. It's like just a parallel. To- Come say. To me, it's fascinating too how you drew some parallels with this extensive touring that you did. There was this great quote about how being a touring musician is sort of being like a vampire having this endless existence and <laughs> it's not all it's cracked up to be, right? Is that, is, was that kind of a, a starting off point too for you or was that something that sort of occurred to you as the album was, was finishing up? I guess it was, um, it occurred to me at some point because I was, I was, I got really into this one vampire movie, Female Vampire, and that is basically a really boring film where the same <laughs> things happen mm-hmm. again and again, but with no sort of, none of that, um, the sexiness of many other vampire movies. It's just a, ch- a chore. It's just like another mm-hmm. day at work, <laughs> draining mm-hmm. the blood. <laughs> mm-hmm. I became fascinated with thinking of vampire as, as work mm-hmm. rather than something that was like an attraction something irresistible like a something like a godlike figure what if it's a clerk just draining the blood every day <laughs> yeah. or a really bored musician mm-hmm. put you know rolling yeah. the cables mm-hmm. draining yeah. the blood
you and your producer basically making this record, and now you're out performing it in front of people. How does that change the work and your interpretation of what Blood Bitch is all about? This is a sort of, how shall I put it, um, unique year since my album came out. The meaning of the album has changed a lot. I, I'm just there performing it, and then the world is changing or falling apart or whatever you know people mm. choose to call it. I flew into America on November 8th and was going to start a tour then mm. a few days later, and all of a sudden I realized, well, my album has changed. Mm -hmm. I might as well re-release it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, because it wasn't about the fictional vampires anymore. It was, it was more about present-day politics and mm -hmm. maybe disappearance like female vampire like the the, the the vampire as being something that can escape or disappear disappear the al from the algorithms Apocalypse Girl, Innocence is Kinky, Blood Bitch. These are all, uh, at different times, intensely personal records, Danny. And then you have to go out and talk about them, right? Do you ever worry, uh, as someone who once invented a different persona for herself, that you're sharing too much? Or is that part of the attraction of making art? Well, I think that's another assumption of the, the female singer-songwriter, that everything is personal. Because, I, I mean, I say it's personal, but it's not private. I mean, all writing is very personal, regardless of what you do and which genre. It's always about yourself. When something is very personal, it means that it relates very deeply to the way I think. But it's not about my life. Mm. So I very rarely write more than a sentence at a time in a song that actually relates to the narrative of my life. I don't find that so interesting. I, I mean, I, I even thought of Blood Bitch as a fictional album. Mm-hmm. And I know that that doesn't mean that it's not personal at all. I'm sometimes afraid that I'm undersharing. Mm. But I think that the most important thing is to give something that's very personal in, you know, everything from creating the, the, the sounds on the art odyssey to having lyrical content where you're actually thinking as you're writing, you're giving something of your thought and your emotional energy to the words and how you express them. I, I do think that when I'm asked about oversharing, it reminds me of you know pe what people said to Joni Mitchell hmm. back in the day, which I think is, um, I wonder if people would have asked me this so much if if I were a man. It's true. Is it which is not criticism of you, but which mm -hmm. is something I've been you know thinking about for years. If people don't ask Mick Jagger about if that. he's oversharing, right? And when I say personal, I just mean as a body. Mm. You know, the way you talk about sex, the way you talk about menstruation, the way you talk about just being a female. Because I just haven't heard other female artists talk intensely as much about being a female as you have. Well, I mean, it's it's from my personal experience, I have taken a great interest in poetry and, and performance art, yeah. where I think a lot of people have been extremely personal, private. Sure. Over the Karen Finley kind of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I just find that, you know, in pop music, there's this wider, there's this huge space that hasn't been filled. Mm. Yeah. In the doctor's office, speculum holds me over. Space in the space. Accidental sci-fi. 
You know, you mentioned, and it's interesting, you mentioned the words pop music in connection to your own music. How do you see yourself in that world? Would you ever see yourself making or wanting to make music that is that accessible uh, to, you know, like a, a pop audience, you know, versus mm -hmm. the kind of music that you're making, which I think is, you're not going to hear, you're not going to turn on a big commercial radio station in, in America and hear that. Would you want to be in that space ever? Well, I mean, pop music is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And certainly some of the music I make is comes from trying to make something that I think is fairly pop. Yeah. But in my brain, you know, something went wrong, obviously. And, <laughs> and so I think I'm making something that's accessible to everybody. I really do think that. Mm -hmm. And I also think that people who walk into the room when I play can get something out of it, even if they didn't come to see me. Mm -hmm. I think that um, music that is you know, not radio friendly and not not the sort of commercial music that is picked to do like capitalism's duties, you know, the sinks and the mm. being in that scene and that movie and all that stuff. That there is room for, for everyone to understand that stuff. Um, but it's just not seen or heard. So um, I often think that I'm making hits. Yeah. But obviously I'm not. We've been talking to Jenny Vall about her music, her life, her career. Jenny, thanks so much for coming to Sound Opinions. Yeah, my pleasure, and thank you. And we want to hear from you. What do you think about Jenny Vall's music? Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Coming up, Greg, you have a song you can't live without. What are you going to add to the Desert Island Jukebox? Yes, Jim, I'm going to pay tribute to the uh, late, great Soundgarden singer Chris Cornell. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. That's a track called Same Old Blues from an electronic duo named Fanagram from their third album, Three. Deep, dark, moody track with an incredible sample on it. We decided to make this track the next subject of our sample platter, Jim. Yeah, what we've been doing, Greg, is looking at a song that is built upon another song, Mm -hmm. sampling it, and often uh, they've been hits so far, but here we're kind of going in reverse. I think the most interesting part of of this sample platter is the roots of this sample, and we're going to show how it's been used in two very different ways. It is is a deep cut, as they say, They're all deep cuts, Uh, three deep cuts. And uh, the original recording, extremely obscure. It's a track called Oh Yes, My Lord by a group named Voices of Conquest, a gospel group out of Detroit, recorded in the 60s in very primitive fashion, really. Not a great recording technology kind of situation with a great drummer who could probably make anything sound fantastic and a great choir. Uh, You have this magical piece of pop. It's like John Bonham backing up this 20-piece choir. What we had was a situation in the 60s where this recording was made. It was relatively ignored. It wasn't a huge seller, it wasn't a huge commercial success, but the great reissue label Numero Group out of Chicago put it on one of their compilations, the Good God Compilation in 2006, and it was sourced by a couple of prominent producers to anchor tracks by prominent artists. The first example of someone using Oh Yes, My Lord in an inventive way for a new piece of pop music was Common from his Nobody's Smiling album in 2014, the track Kingdom, interpolated the Oh Yes, My Lord choir. Uh, In other words, they re-recorded the parts, but basically used the same melody, the same driving, uplifting sense of melody. With my hood on, my homie used to rap. He was about to get put on at his funeral, listening to this church song. His family yelling and screaming. It is no coincidence that No ID, the producer on that record, happened to dig up a Dusty's yeah. funk and soul sample from the 60s and 70s and used it on a comic. Well, he could have discovered it himself in a bin somewhere. He could have gotten it from Numero Group. Craig, why do you think uh, Common turned to this sample for his track? Well, you know, I talked to him a few years ago about it, Jim, and what Kingdom was trying to portray. Uh, was how a young African-American kid who's growing up in an underprivileged neighborhood, what solace he might find in church, because it's not speaking to him in a way that relates to his life in any way. Mm. I think that the tension between, you know, the young would-be gangbanger versus the uh, you know, the solace and the, and the guidance that he may find in church is, is apparent throughout the song. It's never fully resolved. But those voices, you know, ring through. So fantastic use of, of that track. As I said, more of an interpolation than a sample. What happened with Fantagram is that their producer, Ricky Reed, produced one of your favorites, Jim Megan. Megan Trainer. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, this time it was all about a gospel obscurity from the 60s that he chopped up, sampled, and inspired one of the deepest tracks from that Fantagram album, Same Old Blues. <laughs> Oh, yes, my love, you 
Now, Fanagram's an ambitious band. There's no two ways about it. You know, and their fans, their super fans, range from Big Boy, they've collaborated with him, to The Flaming Lips, and from Miley Cyrus to DJ A-Track. It's, it's a weird combination of electronic band, pop band, and dream pop, as they say, shoegazer. They don't really fall into any genre conveniently. Joshua Carter and Sarah Bartell... Uh, they became friends in junior high school. Mm. They've been making music a long time. They suffered a tragedy in the group. Sarah's sister committed suicide. They stopped recording for this three album that they were working on. When they returned to the studio, finally felt well enough to start making some music again. And more tragedies happened. Two of their personal heroes died within months of each other. I'm talking about David Bowie and Prince in the early part of 2016. So what you hear in Same Old Blues was heavily inspired by those tragedies. And this sample of this choir, at once ancient and uplifting and yet oddly inspiring, in spite of this darkness that was befalling their lives, seemed to be a perfect fit for the mood that they were trying to create on Same Old Blues. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play a track for you that we cannot live without. Greg, uh, it's kind of a sad circumstance uh, this week, but what do you got? Yeah, Jim, we just keep getting these uh, these body blows, these these shocking deaths. Uh, most recently, Chris Cornell, uh, the singer from Soundgarden, died May 18th at the age of 52. Uh, just had played a, a what, it, by all counts, was a triumphant show in Detroit. Returned to his hotel room, was found dead in his room uh, hours later. Uh, the um, medical examiner is calling it a suicide, although the family of Chris Cornell is disputing that. What is uh, indisputable is that Chris Cornell is gone, uh, but he made some indelible music in his lifetime. I think, obviously, people know him best from Soundgarden, mm -hmm. a, uh, uh, the precursor in many ways of what became known as the Seattle Sound. While they were not a grunge band, I hate even using that word per se, uh, they really uh, were the impetus for the, form, uh, for the start of Sub Pop Records. Sub Pop basically started... Uh, by Bruce Pavitt and Jonathan Poneman to put out a Soundgarden record. Mm -hmm. um, so after that, um, everybody else took Sub Pop 
quite seriously because, hey, this great band that everybody loves yeah. in the city of Seattle uh, is chosen to record for them. So in, in short order, we had bands like Mud Honey and, and Nirvana recording for uh, Sub Pop as well. He was a real catalyst of, of that scene, uh, Chris Cornell. Uh, a, a known best for that amazing voice. He had a huge multi-octave voice. People would compare him to Robert Plant all the time. I don't think they sounded really that much alike, but Cornell did have that sort of power, that visceral power that people related to. But what I found most intriguing about this guy was his ability to deliver a ballad. And that really didn't become apparent until that singles soundtrack, that movie Mm. singles that came out in 1992. Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe comes into town and actually starts making this film before Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all these bands are blowing up. He's actually catching the scene as it's emerging from the underground uh, and doing this very heartfelt movie. Uh, It's a romantic comedy, let's say. But the foundation of it is the music scene. It's a loving tribute to that uh, music scene, including uh, this somewhat comical uh, figure, Cliff Poncier, played by <laughs> uh, played by Matt Dillon, uh, who is the lead singer of this band, Citizen Dick, and 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 so so Cliff Poncier and Citizen Dick become sort of like a punchline. They're dressed up in their early Pearl Jam garb, and yep. you know they they look they are Pearl Jam in effect, except for the Matt Dillon being the the lead singer. Um, the story goes that uh, Cornell was so taken with the movie that Cameron Crowe was doing that he actually made an entire cassette of Cliff Poncier music. Citizen Dick, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, here's here's this cassette. Look, at I just found this cassette, and Cameron Crowe plays it. And wait, wait a minute, that's Chris Cornell singing these really cool songs. Uh, one of the songs on that little cassette was uh, Spoon Man, which became one of Soundgarden's biggest hits in, in its metallic incarnation a couple of years later. And another song was Seasons. Here is Chris Cornell with an acoustic guitar delivering an amazing ballad, a dark ballad. You would expect nothing, uh, nothing less from Chris Cornell than something dark, something moody, something introspective. But I think it gave a flavor for the potential within that voice and within uh, that lyricist. I think, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, some of the best lyrics out of that Seattle scene were written by Chris Cornell. And you could hear the poetry not only in his voice but in those words in Seasons for the first time. A, a real surprise on the single soundtrack, a real surprise from a singer associated with a heavy metal band like Soundgarden. Here is Chris Cornell at his best with Seasons on Sound Opinions. Summer nights and long warm days Stolen as the old moon falls And the mirror shows another face Another place to hide it all Another place to hide Seasons roll by. 
That was Seasons by Chris Cornell, dead at the age of 52, Greg's Desert Island jukebox pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to revisit our conversation with Jack White on our trip to Nashville and his Third Man Records label. Greg Sound Opinions was produced by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Greg, Jim, hi, my name is Mike. I could not believe your review and your eternal, endless praise for The Velvet Underground and Nico. Years ago, I bought a copy of that album on cassette. And the last two so-called songs... European song and the Black Angels death song were so incredibly noisy I thought the tape was defective and you're praising it as if it's quote the most important and influential album of all time the opposite end of the spectrum I think Lou Reed's rock and roll animals should be required listening it should be mandatory for anybody that's in a rock and roll band nowadays deserves all the praise that it gets. The Velvet Underground with Nico, it's horrendous. Throw it out, trash it, that's all I had to say. You guys got a great show. (laughs) All right, take care. Bye. Hi, this is Max calling from West Hartford, Connecticut. Just listening to your uh, podcast episode about analog versus digital and the whole discussion around the ambient sounds and potential, you know, interesting mistakes in the studio and that kind of thing. I must say, when I was a teenager, I used to devour all of that. But the one that sticks with me the most is on the Blind Melon album, Nico. There's Letters from a Porcupine, which was uh, recorded into one of the band members' voicemails because Shannon called him to play him a new song and he didn't get him, so he got his voicemail. My name is Jason Tebby. I'm calling you from Maplewood, New Jersey. Um, I really enjoyed your episode about the new analog, and you said something that got me thinking about, what about that kid in Montana today who can hear all this music he couldn't hear before? Well, I was that kid in rural Nebraska in the 1990s um, where I didn't have a lot of access to good record stores. And I I think about this all the time because, on the one hand, if I was a teenager in that world today, I would have had so much easier access to music. Um, I think that's a great thing, and a lot of my, I'm a teacher, a lot of my students now um, really prize that and are really into music they never would have heard of. At the same time, there was nothing like that satisfaction of like having a weekend in Omaha or Kansas City and going to the record store and you know finding that 
old Sonic Youth album that I really wanted to listen to. Anyway, guys, keep up the great work, and thank you. Bye. Hi, Greg and Jim. This is Schooly from Inverness, Illinois. Uh, another disappearing analog medium is the hard-printed concert ticket. If one is even available from the ticket service, I'll pay up to 250 extra to get that ducat. Most door people even seem surprised when I present it for entry. It's not like I'm mounting them in elaborate scrapbooks or collages. No, I'm like those other Luddites who need to have and hold that single LP or CD. We fetishize the physical artifact. Next month, I'm seeing Mary Timoney plays Helium. That's my Super Bowl, and you better believe I have a ticket, not a sheet of paper for my printer or a barcode on my phone. Thanks. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.